Atamaria, welcome to First Up. This is Rapare. That's Thursday, the 17th of November. Ko Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up this morning, we're in Poland where tensions are high after a missile killed two people near the border with Ukraine. Henry Riley brings us the UK's reaction. A new documentary explores the concept of homosexuality within Christianity. And we ask the acting Prime Minister Grant Robertson if we're in for another COVID summer as new modelling suggests that we could hit 11,000 cases a day. COVID's going to be present in summer, and I think all New Zealanders need to understand that, that it might not get to 11,000, but the reality is we will continue to have cases, and we've got plenty of them right now. A very, very busy programme for you this morning here at First Up. I'm Nathan Rarity and let's start it off the best way we do. We start our show with Henry Riley today from the UK. Kia ora, sir, how are you? Hello, highlight of my week. How are you, Nathan? Good, man. I know that you've got uh, problems with trying to buy eggs, I see there in England. It's a bit of an egg crisis mm. right now. But tell us about more problems for Rishi Sunak. What's he in now? Well, I have my full English breakfast on a Sunday, so I'm very concerned about the lack of eggs in the UK. So um, I'll, I'll keep you up to date with how that goes. Yes. Um, problems for the Prime Minister. You're quite right. We've spoken over the last few weeks, haven't we, Nathan? Firstly, there was the problem with his Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. She said in post, but it's not been without controversy. Then last week when we spoke, it was Sir Gavin Williamson, the former chief whip who held a tarantula in his office. Um, right. He then got yeah, he got sacked, so it didn't end too well for him. And with Dominic Raab, we're not really sure. So he was Deputy Prime Minister under Boris Johnson. He's been a very senior and in some ways reliable um, minister. When Boris Johnson was in intensive care during COVID, he took over as essentially interim Prime Minister and was widely thought to have done a pretty straightforward job on that. But it now comes with allegations that he is involved in bullying behaviour. Now, some of the more colourful details from this include the fact that he allegedly threw tomatoes from one of our big chains called Pret-a-Manger from one of their salads. He was throwing them at a member of staff, um, which obviously can't have been very pleasant, but I stress that's an allegation. Um, He has now, it's all been sort of informal allegations, but that's changed today. And Rishi Sunak's off in Bali, sunning himself at the uh, at the uh, G20 summit. And so Dominic Raab had to stand in for, for Prime Minister's questions today, which I'm sure he was very pleased about. Uh, Dominic Raab facing these allegations. And it now comes that two of the complaints have been formal. So he has now said, I, you know, I'm recognising the Deputy Prime Minister. So, you know, he's not a sort of junior minister. This man's the Deputy Prime Minister once again. And he has said that there needs to be an investigation to look into whether these formal complaints are true and the Prime Minister has gone, yes, we'll look into it. So he is currently being investigated to find out whether he's a bully. So we had Liz Truss with the lettuce, we've got Rob with the tomato. You need someone to do something with salad dressing and we've got a good little salad gag going on there and we'll, we'll try and figure it out. Well, Gordon Brown famously threw a stapler across the room when he was Prime Minister. <laughs> he apparently used to throw objects at members of his staff as well. So there's, there's, there's obviously a bit of a, uh, a hot-headedness when it comes to being in senior positions of government. Sounds like a 1980s boys' high school in New Zealand. Right, let's go to another one here. Um, bad economic news, though. I mentioned this before there about that shortage of eggs, but tell us about the economic news. Probably inflation, is it? It is inflation. And isn't it funny, we've been speaking about this 
on a regular basis about when we get our inflation stats. And I remember speaking with you some months back and it was, well, you know, Nathan, uh, inflation might hit double digits soon here in the UK. And it's like, well, that, that can't happen. Uh, it's now hit 11.1%. So we're firmly into double digits. Um, this is a 41 year high. And actually, every time we speak, I end up going, this is incredible, Nathan. This is yeah. a 40 year high. Every year it gets topped. Uh, every month, sorry, it gets topped. So now 41 year high. Um, the Bank of England, interestingly, thought inflation would hit its absolute most at 10.7%. So they clearly didn't think it would be as bad as it is. What's driven that? Again, it's food prices. We said this uh, on a regular basis. Um, food prices have hit their highest levels and their fastest acceleration since September 1977. So that's been the main driver of inflation. Elsewhere, energy bills and gas prices going up significantly have caused much of the inflationary spiral as well. Gee, it's a, all around the world, very similar story. Let's go to this one just finally. Tell me about this. Rishi Sunak's meeting uh, with China's uh, Xi Jinping uh, called off the, that um, G7 meeting after the missiles the, uh, missiles they landed in Poland. Have you got more on that? Yeah, very suspicious. There's been a lot of criticism about this meeting between Rishi Sunak and Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, mainly because there was a lot of pressure on Rishi Sunak to raise human rights issues within China, to raise the issue of the Uyghur Muslims within China. And uh, it's all been trailed that there was going to be this big meeting in Bali as part of the G20. And it's always a sort of catch-22 for prime ministers, because when they meet these people, it's, well, you shouldn't meet these people. They've got terrible human rights abuses. You know, what they're doing is not OK. But then when you don't meet them, it's, well, what if Xi Jinping is there, why wouldn't you speak to him? So it's sort of a catch-22. It would have been the first time a British leader had faced and spoken with President Xi in almost five years. So it's not a sort of regular meet up we were due to have that on wednesday morning uh, just before or after rishi sunak delivered a press conference which he did this morning and it was cancelled we don't have further details on that other than it was allegedly a scheduling clash but as you say the missiles which uh, happened in the early hours of this morning here uh, may uh, may have been one of the driving factors but it's still pretty up in the air as to why um as, as to why it's been cancelled. The, the soon actually was hopeful they'll still meet at some point. Yeah. Henry, thank you so much for your time, sir. There he is, uh, searching for an egg. Uh, Henry Riley out of the UK. It is 11 and a half past five here at First Up on RNZ National. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is in Vietnam attending the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, APEC, and she has one message. New Zealand is open for business, so it's time to catch up with First Up's man on the scene. He travels in motorcades now. He avoids uh, stowaways on planes. He's RNZ's business editor, Giles Beckford, who's with us. Giles, kia ora. Thank you very much for your time. Tell us about this big business message. Kia ora to you, Nathan. Well, actually, we're not quite at the APEC Summit, which is in Bangkok. We go there tomorrow, but we're in uh, Hanoi, and we have been uh, waving the flag. Well, the government's been waving the flag, and it's been full on uh, for Jacinda Ardern sending the message very simply that New Zealand's open for business uh, and here we are. And uh, she's joined up with the trade mission here, which has been uh, looking to renew the links uh, that New Zealand has. I mean, it's a $2 billion export market for New Zealand and the aim is to try and double that if they can over the next few years. Uh, there was a, a, a big presence of small New Zealand businesses who are selling their wares 
Uh, there was one formal opening of a retail outlet for EcoStore. Now, folk may know that company as one that sells uh, environmentally sound and sustainable uh, cleaning products and household products. Uh, they've got themselves a, a place in what looked like a, a pretty upmarket shopping center. I mean, you know, all the goods there, they weren't your warehouse quality. They were certainly uh, top-of-the-line products being sold there. So a big uh, you know, a good spot for them to be. They were over the moon when Jacinta turned up. I mean, there would have been something like a, a dozen local uh, TV cameras and reporters and and the like. Uh, it was uh, you know, the full ceremonial with uh, speeches, ribbon cutting uh, done by Jacinda Ardern. Um, you know. Popping of champagne corks while well, she left that to Damien O'Connor, who seems to be uh, doing all the dangerous jobs for her on this trip. Uh, so uh, I spoke to Pablo Kraus, who is the CEO of EcoStore. I have to say, if there was a man who was over the moon about having a high-profile person launch the business, then it was him. He was right happy about it. And uh, certainly the response that uh, he got from people there they were certainly quite blown away. Star status of a prime minister hmm. never goes amiss on an occasion like that. Uh, and then there's been a, a big trade and uh, enterprise uh, seminar and uh, functions selling uh, the products that are coming from just small companies. Um, one of them uh, is uh, Open Dairy. There's um, uh, Douglas Pharmaceuticals. The, 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 the theme was essentially uh, it's food, it's healthy products, natural products. Um, and for all these people, um, this was sort of probably the first significant push that they've got into a market that's been closed to them for quite a while. So they're hoping that they'll get a lift off the back of this. Um, Charles, we were just speaking with Henry before in the UK and their Prime Minister had to cut short uh, a meeting with, with China's uh, Premier because they were worried about the situation there in Poland. Uh, I understand the Prime Minister's been watching what's happening in Poland. Does, does it threaten at all to cast a shadow or maybe uh, you know affect APEC? Well, interestingly, um, Jacinda Ardern was quite measured in her reaction to that Polish uh, missile strike. Um, she was saying, look, we need to know for sure where it came from. Uh, she wasn't pointing the finger necessarily at Russia for the particular strike, but saying, you've got to say in the end, it's because Russia invaded Ukraine that it happened. Uh, and, you know, all the international community has to work hard to try and bring this to an end. Uh, it will be something that sort of hangs over uh, the APEC summit, although I think the hope is that because the meeting between uh, Joe Biden and uh, Xi Jinping seemed to be uh, quite quite moderate, uh, an easing of the tensions there, then the hope might be that uh, this will perhaps just dissipate some of the tensions that are there. We believe, and I can say we, you know, and I can only say we believe, it's understood that uh, whereas Rishi Sunak didn't get the meeting with uh, Xi Jinping, Jacinda Ardern will, uh, that there will be a formal face-to-face meeting. They call them bilaterals in the trade. So she will have the opportunity to present New Zealand concerns. She made it quite clear when we asked her, is it going to happen? She said, well, if it does happen, then I'll say what uh, in, pub- in private, what I've always been saying in public, which is that you know China has uh, many important contributions to make. It's our biggest trading partner, but that shouldn't stop us from being critical about 
things such as uh, human rights issues and the uh, Uyghurs, uh, certainly she's going to say, uh, if it happens, look, we don't really appreciate the prospects of militarization of the South Pacific from China's uh, foray there. So, uh, you know, she says she will be as candid in private as she has been in public, and that's how it goes. Mm. Giles, there he is. Thank you very much. He's amongst the Pomelos. Uh, Giles Beckford, who joins us there from Vietnam. Big news uh, by a Florida man out of the United States overnight. It is Simon Marks, who we speak to right now uh, with what's happening. Kia ora, sir. How are you? Kia ora, uh, Nathan. I am all right. How are you? I'm good. So tell us about the big announcement. Yeah, touch bleary-eyed here because the big announcement went on for 64 minutes last night and uh, I waded through the whole thing. But let's get to the meat and potatoes. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Together, we will be taking on the most corrupt forces and entrenched interests imaginable. Our country is in a horrible state. We're in grave trouble. This is not a task for a politician or a conventional candidate. This is a task for a great movement that embodies the courage, confidence, and the spirit of the American people. He once again couched himself as an outsider in American politics, defended his record in office in the White House, uh, dismissed suggestions that uh, he had overplayed his hand in the midterm elections, almost indicating uh, that when he'd been on the campaign trail, uh, promising to mobilise a tsunami of Republican support last week and had spoken about uh, a landslide for the Republicans, particularly in the House of Representatives. That was all hyperbole. We all knew that we were just at the beginning of something, not at the end, he insisted. Uh, And so his presidential campaign began uh, with a speech that I think it's fair to say, uh, Nathan, even by the standards of Donald Trump, was one of his more dark presentations to the American public. He didn't use the phrase American carnage uh, like he did, of course, in his January 2017 inaugural address, but he absolutely insisted the country is being completely destroyed, reduced to ashes uh, by President Joe Biden, and he is the man to fix it. Wow. So it's like he's playing the hits again. And interestingly, when he when he was campaigning previously, there was Team Trump, not just he, but the, the beautiful family there flanking him on either side. But I see missing last night, there's Melania, there's Jared, there's Eric, there's Lara, there's Baron, there's no Ivanka. Why is Ivanka uh, pulling out on him? Yeah, absolutely. So Ivanka Trump took to Instagram last night to announce that she will not be playing any kind of role in her father's 2024 presidential campaign. I love my father very much, she wrote. This time around, I am choosing to prioritise my young children and the private life we are creating as a family. I do not intend to be involved in politics, she said. While I will always love and support my father, going forward I will do so outside the political arena. I think there will be some Republican supporters of Donald Trump disappointed by that news. I mean, there were moments during the Trump presidency when he even hinted at the possibility 
uh, of Ivanka Trump becoming America's first female president. Mm. Certainly she and her husband, Jared Kushner, were at times and to the extent that it was possible, somewhat moderating influences within the Trump White House. And I'm picking those words deliberately carefully. (laughs) But of course, she has uh, faced uh, accusations of being involved in the Trump Organization's business conspiracy among uh, Donald Trump's other adult children, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric, uh, by the New York Attorney General. And she may simply have decided enough of all of this hassle. Simon, isn't uh, isn't Donald Trump under investigation of some sort? Yeah, well, multiple investigations, but I think the one that most uh, concerns him and members of his inner circle is the possibility that Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, uh, and uh, prosecutors at the Department of Justice will, at some time potentially very soon, uh, bring criminal charges against him for his role in fomenting uh, the unrest on Capitol Hill on January the 6th a year ago, uh, and for his role in promoting election denialism. And once again, in that speech last night he was back at it i mean he even said that as president if he wins in 2024 uh, he is going to uh, insist that elections only take place across the country using paper ballots he will ban early voting uh, and he will insist that the vote count is completed nationwide on election night it's got to be all done before the dawn after the night before uh, breaks which of course is uh, going to be extremely challenging in a country uh, that uh, stretches uh, from the east to west coast and has 300 million people in it uh, so donald trump is not giving way on many of those entirely false claims that he made and insisted in his speech that he is going to defang the fbi and the department of justice i'm a victim he said he said that he was being persecuted and that he is going to uh, engage in what he described as a top to bottom overhaul to clean out the festering corruption of Washington DC that was Washington correspondent Simon Marks Which took us to 23 past five and Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, you're going to hear a really interesting new documentary which explores the concept of homosexuality within Christianity. And we will be in Poland where tensions, of course, are very high after a missile kills two farmers near the Ukrainian border. To Marlborough now, where we join local democracy reporting program journalist Maya Hart. Kia ora, Maya. Welcome. And I understand you guys finally get to do the, oh, where have you really been? joke down there now. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Um, the council's looking at rolling them out. To, got a lot of households um, and extending their curbside scheme, which would be good. And it's always a good thing too. You're never quite sure when it's supposed to be bin night. Um, so there's always the trendsetter that goes up first that everyone in their copy. So, so tell us about the situation that's been used before that. Like, how do things normally go with that with with the wheelie bins? Um, since uh, prior to having these wheelie bins. So at the moment, Blenheim and Picton have curbside recycling, which is the the old school crates, which end up on the road. All of the recycling does, and also plastic bags. And then everyone else, say Renwick, which is only 10 minutes out of town, has to bring it into town themselves um, and recycle it. Or, or they can go through a commercial company. Um, so there are a few businesses set up for wheelie bins that, yeah, can collect them for them. And But the council doesn't have wheelie bins themselves um, through their rate system. 
Ah, I see. And um, while we're there, let's have a look at uh, the region's roads too, because um, apparently they're still still a little concerning after the August floods. Yeah, so they reallocated some funding from the July floods in 2020 recently, which I think was about $20 million left over that they still hadn't spent. But in doing that, NZTA said that they had to uh, undertake a report or an engineering report to decide which roads were sustainable and which ones, uh, what level of service each road would have across the entire region, which basically means any longer permanent repairs are going to take a while um, because they need to know yeah, which roads they put back and which roads maybe they don't need anymore, um, which I'm sure, yeah, has probably concerned a few people, but that'll all go to consultation and the rest of it, so I'm sure the community will have a chance to have their say. Yeah, and I understand too, um, some of the slips uh, that have been happening around there, they, they think some trees might be to blame. Yeah, there was a meeting uh, last week with the Port Underwood community, and one reason that she said almost every single slip was a result of wilding pines along that road. Um, and he kind of said, oh, there's a chance now because there's seedlings that have spread. There's a chance now to get them while they're young, the, the trees that are now growing. Because um, otherwise the same thing's just going to keep happening over and over again, which is a concern. Maya, thank you very much for your time. Uh, that's news out of Marlborough from the local democracy reporting programs. Maya Hart. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we call the 17th of November. Many happenings on this day. Let's head to uh, those that act. Uh, Rachel McAdams, Regina George from Mean Girls, 44 years old today. And I I love this one. He was just Louis from Taxi for me. I, I just thought he was so great. Danny DeVito, 78 years old today. Uh, one of the masters of the uh, behind-the-camera work is Martin Scorsese, who is 80 years old today. Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, Cape Fear. Not really too many slapstick comedies in there, but incredible movies. On this day in 1869, after 10 years of construction, they went, way go, and the Suez Canal uh, was opened in Egypt. I fell into a little hole finding out about someone who was born on this day in 1906 called Soichiro Honda. Of course, he was the uh, inventor of uh, Honda Motors, which last year made 14.95 trillion yen. Uh, incredible man, he was the son of a blacksmith, and apparently a car drove through his town when he was a little boy, and he said that. The smell of it was like perfume and he wanted to be a part of it and he learned how to blacksmith things and he could make a little stamp because your school report used to be sent home and your family had to stamp it and send it back so he made his own stamps <laughs> was doing that and he got caught making them for other kids anyway he was an incredible engineer went off to make piston rings for Toyota uh, and then uh, what he did was he uh, turned that technology into going you know what I'm going to make my own ones and he invented this machine that he, he made and they went what's that he said this is our version of the motorbike the motorcycle took off, and uh, that's how Honda Motors became that giant, uh, that giant company. But yeah, really interesting uh, life story from him. And also, in 1970, Douglas Engelbart went, "There you go. I would like a patent for that." And they said, "What's that?" And he said, "That's my computer mouse." And that happened all on the 17th of November. I need a dollar, dollar, dollar. That's what I need. We 
go to the business team now. It's Andrew McRae who is here in New Zealand. Kia ora, sir. Tell us about this tourism activity and household spending drives latest economic activity. Expand on that, please, sir. Yeah, good day, Nathan. Yes, well, the quarterly economic survey put out by Infometrics is painting a Probably you could describe a reasonable picture of the economy at a time when things are still a bit of a struggle out there, as we all know. Uh, tourism and household spending seems to be saving the day. Now, the Infometrics monitor shows a 2.6% rise in annual provisional economic activity for the 12 months to September, with a 5.4% rise in quarterly activity. There's been strong growth in the regions, uh, particularly in the South Island and Auckland, of course. The economic powerhouse is also doing well. A number of North Island economies have seen some restrained growth uh, due to capacity constraints, but they do continue to have strong levels of activity compared to those bad old days, or the good old days, I guess, the, the pre-pandemic times. Infometrics economist Brad Olson says uh, solid regional performances reinforce his view that local economies across the country are well positioned to help us wrestle inflation under control, particularly with the prediction out there that uh, there's going to be stunted growth uh, 2023 and 24. Now, tourism activity has come back stronger than first expected. That's good. Uh, thanks mainly to our cousins across the Tasman. More of them are, are travelling here. And also the high numbers coming out of North America, helped, I guess, by, you know, there's a number of different locations that Air New Zealand are now flying to in the US and also into Canada. One caveat, though, that there's finding that the resources to support the strong number of tourists coming back uh, the, the problem is going to be, of course, you know, the existing workforce and capacity challenges, just not enough workers to be in those tourist spots. Um, but good news on the employment front, of course. Uh, filled job numbers have uh, risen uh, 3% over the 12 months to September, although the quarterly growth of 26 shows the pace of job additions is starting to slow as unemployment rate remains at a, a near record low. Now, the strongest jobs growth areas seem to be Tasman, uh, Canterbury and Bay of Plenty. And as Brad says, having people in employment and earning a living you know, does, of course, provide a solid platform for the future. And just getting back to spending, mm. while it is up, it was effectively flat once inflation was then factored in. And there seems to be little sign of spending falling, even in the face, of course, you know, rising interest rates, which, as we know, squeezes the old household budget. And it's coming back to the old question of trying to drag inflation down in a strong, growing economy ahead of what's likely to be a bit of a spending crunch next year, as inflation, you know, fighting efforts hit households. So pretty good news, really, and good to see that the regions are pushing that growth. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, Andrew McRae there. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Let's have a quick look at what your New Zealand dollar can buy you today around the world. It buys you 61.65 US cents, 91.32 Australian cents, 59.37 Euro cents, 52.04 British pence, 4.36 yuan and 85.93 Japanese yen. It is 25 to 6 here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. So biblical condemnation of homosexuality has been used as justification for anti-gay sentiment and actions by many uh, sections of Christianity but a new documentary sheds light on the fact that the very word homosexual didn't actually appear in a Bible until the year 1946. So the documentary 1946 The Mistranslation That Shifted Culture debuted uh, this week in New York and the director and uh, one of the of course, features on camera one of the stars of the documentary is Sharon Rocky Roggio uh, is with me right now um, Rocky thank you very much for being 
amazing here. I watched this yesterday. I was really fascinated. So can you just explain to people, what, what were the words that were there before 1946? Was it implied that, 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 you know, that homosexuality was bad and this is just, a, you know, the word doesn't appear or is it something quite different? Sure. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me on your program. I'm so excited that y'all were able to watch the film and it's reaching overseas. So this is so exciting. Uh, You know, homophobia has plagued our lands for many years. We're in a very, you know, uh, patriarchal cultures have always dominated our societies and we've always struggled with societies and and even churches creating the other, right? And so what we do with this examination of how the word homosexual, which is a medical term that has a connotation of a group of people, was implemented into the Bible where the verses suggest a connotation of abuse, exploitation, rape, and all of these other kinds of things that we see in a first century world or a, a, a Hebrew world, if you're looking at the Old Testament, uh, and so we had a group of lay people, Christians, a straight evangelical woman and a biblical scholar, a gay biblical scholar who wanted to ask the question why, when they found out the word homosexual wasn't put in, in a major translation in any Bible in the world until 1946, was this cultural and theological or was there any, um, or was it cultural or was it theological? Hmm. And they discovered that the uh, archives of the team that first inserted this word were at, at Yale University, and they discovered that it was, in fact, a mistranslation. And so our film then explores how homophobia exploded in the church, specifically in uh, Christian settings, and how then the Bible became amplified against the LGBTQ community. Rocky, it was an interesting watch because at no time does it come across that you or the others are rejecting your faith uh, or Christianity at all. It's more like you're saying, you know, we, we, we can be a part of this too. But I am wondering if you have experienced some sort of aggressive pushback on this. Oh, absolutely. We've had hundreds of radio shows, sermons, podcasts, articles, uh, YouTube videos, TikToks, and then even a person who wrote a book just trying to piggyback off the 1946 brand, if you ask me, putting in the same rhetoric and using old biblio- you know, bibliographies from the 80s and 90s that are just completely outdated. Uh, and they're saying the same thing that we've all heard, you know. And so um, it's I, I'm, I'm very excited that people are talking about the documentary. But for me as the filmmaker, thank you for noticing those notes of honing and finessing these themes because, you know, as we're deconstructing the Bible, we don't want people to feel like they're being, like their rug is being ripped out from underneath them. This is not an attack on the Bible. This is not an attack on God. This is not an attack on anybody's faith. This is about a real mistranslation that has real implications in our real society. And so we wanted to address these themes in an academic, journalistic, relational approach to just engage in a dialogue. And hopefully the other side that are saying all of these things and trying to debunk our movie from a two and a half minute trailer actually get a chance to watch the movie and we can have broader conversations about this and recognize how the Bible has been weaponized. And, you know, and it's not just the topic, too. There's incredible depth of character in there. There's a beautiful moment from Ed uh, speaking about, you know, experiencing intimacy and stuff. But uh, you, you you, and your father, your father is a, is a, a pastor. So uh, tell us about, um, I guess, him and getting him to agree to, to be in the documentary because he never really moves on his position. Correct. 
Yeah, so it was really important to have my father, Sal Roggio, in the film so that we can engage the audience, letting people know, you know, this isn't a fairy tale story. <laughs> uh, and we're not going to change everybody's minds, and that's okay. At the end of the day, we deserve equal protection under the law, and we need to be recognized as equal parts of humanity. And so my father is entitled to his beliefs, and I'm entitled to mine. But how do we then put them out into the real world? You know, and so that's what I'm trying to do in this exploration. And I'm so grateful that my father went on this journey with us. Now, he was at the world premiere with us in New York City at Doc NYC on Saturday night. And uh, an audience member asked him the same question. And he said he feels he was tricked into being in the documentary and everybody got a, gr a great laugh. Uh, but, you know, he did agree and he signed a release form and we told him we would make sure that he has an opportunity that his authentic voice will be seen. He will get equal representation as everybody else. And he trusts me and we love each other. And so I'm just so grateful he was a part of this. Yeah, the, the love is there, even though there's the disagreement, there's the bit where he pats you on the back, goes, love you, sweetie, which was, was lovely to see. <laughs> <laughs> just very, very quickly, how do you, how do you hope um, 1946 makes people feel? Well, I hope that it makes them feel, uh, I mean, I've heard a lot of different things. I mean, some people are very angry, but then there's also hope. I really want to have hope override the, all of the other triggering emotions that are going to come out from watching this and seeing the history of how the word homosexual went from one verse into six different verses and then pretty much went viral in print and how then the moral majority in the 80s amplified it and weaponized it and politicized gay people. It's quite upsetting. But at the end of our movie, we do end with a note of hope. Uh, there's also resolution and there's forgiveness. And, you know, we're all still here engaging in the dialogue. So I hope that people will just walk away saying, you know what? Maybe I need to look at this and revisit this, and maybe we don't have all the answers. And also understanding that biblical inerrancy is a modern invention, you know, and so literalism needs to be challenged. Yeah. Rocky, thank you so much for your time. The documentary is called 1946, The Mistranslation That Shifted Culture. Still to come on first up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. We get the latest from Poland. Also, we hear from our Deputy Prime Minister. The professionals of Morning Reporter here after six with a quick preview of what is happening. It's Marnie Dunlop. Sure, Marnie, how are you? I'm good. Morena, how are you? Good. What's going on today? Uh, well, as you will be covering, we'll have the latest uh, from Poland uh, and our correspondence as well as analysis uh, from our experts here in Aotearoa. Uh, but we also have Giles Beckford, who I know you spoke to yesterday. He's just giving us an update from all of the summits happening yes. uh, in East Asia and uh, as well as go diving into the new eligibility around boosters uh, for uh, Māori and Pacifica communities um, now will be over 63,000 are now eligible. So diving into that a bit more. That's that's great. Let's get let's get more boosters happening. Thank you very much, Absolutely. Marnie. Uh, you can hear more from uh, Marnie and Corin after six. There, our morning report. Well, diplomatic tensions ran high yesterday after a missile killed two people in Poland near its border with Ukraine, raising fears of how NATO may respond to the incident uh, in a member state. I discussed the unfolding situation with acting Prime Minister Grant Robertson.
Look, the details are still pretty unclear here and various sources from various different countries are, are, are speculating a little bit. Clearly, a tragedy has occurred. Two innocent people in Poland have been killed and you know our hearts obviously go out to them, their families and the Polish people generally. The tragedy is that this is a byproduct of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So whoever's responsible for the specific missile in this instance, the whole reason why that happened is because we've had this illegal invasion that Russia continues to bomb civilian targets and it really just reinforces what New Zealand has been saying for some considerable time now that Russia needs to stop and they need to get out from another sovereign country, in this case Ukraine, but an absolute tragedy and one that obviously sets everyone on edge and it's definitely a time for cool heads. Clearly there's investigations going on um, as we speak and more clarity will come through but another tragedy from from this invasion. I mean, all of us went through school. We we went and we've, you know, anybody really with access to Google knows about conflict sweeping through all of Europe through history. So Poland is a member of NATO. So how serious is this incident? And, And what if Poland says, come on, NATO, stick up for us? Well, there are provisions within the NATO um, Charter that means that members can ask others you know, to come together and discuss what happens if one of them gets attacked in any way. That hasn't been triggered yet in this situation as people piece together exactly what's happened here. But clearly this is one of the big risks from the Russian invasion is that it does spill over beyond Ukraine, where it's tragic enough already to become a much bigger conflict. And from New Zealand's perspective, that's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing from a humanitarian perspective. It's a terrible thing from a global political and economic perspective. And this is dominating every moment in Europe at the moment. When I was up in Washington a month or so ago, the the European ministers I spoke to, everything was about the invasion, the Russian invasion. It was the cause of political instability, the cause of economic instability, the energy crisis they have. So it's got massive, massive potential consequences. So that's why it isn't time for cool heads, but it's also a time um, to remind ourselves of why, for example, this week we announced further funding and support for Ukraine from New Zealand, because this war is far from over. This attack happened in an instant. So our Defence Force, are they on high alert at the moment should the situation explode? Well, clearly we've we've provided significant support to the Ukrainian forces. We, we announced this week further training support. We were there and doing intelligence work, logistics work. We've given humanitarian aid. We're supporting Ukraine in terms of the work it's doing in the International Court of Justice and Criminal Court. So we're, we're continuing all of those things. From the perspective of this particular incident, it's been monitored very closely by New Zealand officials both in Europe but also here at home. And ministers are briefed constantly about the situation. You know, it's a long way away from us, but it does have an impact and we have to keep a close eye on it. Also a long way away from us, but something that uh, we're always drawn to is US politics. So Donald Trump's announced yesterday he's going to give it another go, standing for president again in 2024. Judging by what you've just seen, what do you believe his chances to be? Yeah, look, it's hard to say from this distance, to be honest. When I was in the United States, one thing that struck me was that the divisions in US society that that have grown over the last few years are very much still there. And I compare it to when I lived there 20 years ago, where 
you know, it was a very civil political environment, despite, you know, parties having very strong views about issues. So there, you know, it is a it is a very divided country and that has impacts on everyday lives, it has impacts on the economy and so on. And so Mr. Trump has, you know, put himself back into it. We we don't tend to comment on on specific candidates, particularly this early in the cycle, but I think all political observers will be noting his reemergence. Obviously the midterm elections were were slightly different outcome than what was expected. So the Biden administration will probably look at that and say, well, we've done as well as any other incumbent president. From New Zealand's perspective, we always have to deal with whoever is in power. In the United States, there are impacts on us from instability and division, and clearly we don't want to see that grow. One of the ways we get to the States is Air New Zealand. Consumer NZ says it's had over 100 complaints, 100, uh, about Air New Zealand in the past three months alone. It's a pretty high number, they reckon. So it's 52% publicly owned. You're the shareholder minister. Are you satisfied with with what New Zealand is, uh, Air New Zealand's currently operating? Yeah, look, I am, um, you know, I fly regularly around New Zealand as part of my job, and so I'm very well aware of of some of the issues that people are raising, and and I myself have been caught up in some of the disruptions that are occurring at the moment. One thing I would say is that this is affecting airlines around the world as they've got themselves back going again post COVID. There have been real issues around availability of planes, staff sicknesses, staff pressures, and getting people back to work after they've perhaps gone off to get another job and so on. So there's a lot happening in the airlines around the world. Uh, but in New Zealand, we've all got high expectations of them. They're an airline that we've, generally speaking, been pretty proud of. And I would certainly be expecting Air New Zealand to do the right thing by their customers if flights, for example, are cancelled because of something that's in control of the airline. In fact, the Civil Aviation Act says that people are entitled to compensation if a flight has been disrupted for reasons that are within an airline's control. So we're all aware of the constraints on Air New Zealand, the rebuild that they've had to do. But as I say, we've got high expectations and, and I'd, I'd hope Air New Zealand can meet those in, in the coming months, especially summertime when so many people will be travelling. Yeah, well, let's have a look at, at summer. I mean, we've had this stark warning from the health officials that COVID numbers could hit 11,000 cases a day. So we're back into there. Are we in for another COVID summer? Oh, look, you know, COVID's going to be present in summer, and I think all New Zealanders need to understand that, that you and I have discussed it many times, Nathan, while the the COVID emergency might be over, the COVID pandemic is still going. And so, yes, I've seen that modelling. It is modelling. It isn't an accurate forecast or even a prediction, because what the modellers do is look at what's happening internationally, look at the potential for new variants, and then they come up with a number. So, it might not get to 11,000, but the reality is we will continue to have cases and we've got plenty of them right now. And so we just ask people to do the right thing here. If you do have it, isolate. Make sure that you, if you're a person with or you know somebody who's got particular vulnerabilities, that they get antivirals that are available now for people who, as soon as you get the symptoms, if you take them, that can really mitigate that situation, that you do continue to look out for each other. Wear masks as you're encouraged to do so and make sure your vaccinations are up to date. You know, these are all things that we can keep doing that hopefully means that number doesn't get up as high as what's been modelled. People really worry about their summer, the things they have planned. They might have holidays, books, festivals planned. Is there any possibility the government could could intervene, you know, maybe order them not to go ahead? Or is there a, a scenario we get to where we get into lockdowns or restrictions? Probably not lockdowns, but restrictions. 
That's not something that we're planning. We continually get advice from our health officials and and I haven't seen any advice that goes in that direction and we certainly have said that we don't want to use lockdowns anymore. What people do really need to do if they're worried about that kind of thing is just think about it themselves. You know, I know some people who've who've recently been traveling you know traveling overseas for various events who have just in the period immediately beforehand have just made sure they wear their masks a bit more often they're aware of of what they're doing and and what they've got planned but for now we can continue to manage the situation with the levels of hospitalization under control but we don't want people to end up in hospital we want people to look after themselves as much as possible acting prime minister grant robertson we speed towards six o'clock so we go to poland now where the investigation continues into who fired the missile that killed two farmers near the country's border with ukraine just before coming to air freelance journalist based in eastern europe jessica Golaha told me the latest the latest is is that Poland and also NATO are saying that Russia did not shoot and target Poland. Essentially what happened was, at least according to them, is that uh, Ukraine shot down a Russian missile that unfortunately landed on Poland's territory. Now, yesterday when this all happened, there were reports that the missile was Russian, which is understandable because Ukraine still has a lot of Russian missiles in its um, in its armoire, if you will. And so essentially, Ukraine still has the S-300 defense missile systems, and that is what is now believed to have happened, is that Ukrainian forces, due to the barrage of missiles that had been striking Ukraine's territory on Tuesday, struck a missile, and then that missile landed in southeast Poland, killing two people. So how does Poland feel about this? Obviously, they've lost two of their citizens. Does it feel like there's a heightened uh, sense of, of tension there? Oh, absolutely. And I have to be honest with you, having gone back and forth from um, Poland to Ukraine since the war began, people here are afraid, and they have been very afraid since the beginning of the war. There are millions of Ukrainians here on the streets in Warsaw and other major cities, so you hear it all the time. You hear Russian, you hear Ukrainian, you hear Polish. People are afraid. They're afraid that the war is going to spill over. And there have been these fears not only by the Polish people, but also by the government of Poland and also NATO that perhaps errant fire could happen in neighboring countries to Ukraine. Now, obviously, Poland is the only country Um, that's a member of NATO next to Ukraine. Um, But there's still these fears that this could happen. And so in in an attempt to try to thwart this, other NATO countries have built out their troops. And right after Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, there were also NATO countries that essentially had called these emergency talks um, because they felt that their territories were uh, actually being threatened by Russia, this Article 4. And yesterday when this missile struck into Poland, Poland had initially said that they were going to call into this Article 4 and request emergency talks because if Russia had in fact attacked Poland, that's a whole other can of worms, for lack of a better word. Has there been a statement from Ukraine yet? There has. Essentially, Ukraine has has said all along that Russia is responsible for these horrendous attacks and it doesn't matter if it was if it um, what the course what in what essentially caused yesterday's missile to land into Poland. It's the fact that Russia is the perpetrator. Russia is 
the provocateur. Now, we have to also remember that Ukraine has been bombarded since February 24th and has really done a good job to push back Russian troops. And Ukraine has consistently asked, pleaded, begged NATO to enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine. But of course, that would make NATO responsible for possibly shooting down Russian aircraft, which would perhaps, which would essentially bring NATO into the war. Um, but Ukraine has not wavered its stance that Russia is responsible for this. And even we heard Jens Stoltenberg today come out and say, listen, it doesn't matter that Ukraine at least as far as we know, according to these preliminary reports, shot down this Russian missile that unfortunately landed in Poland. It's still Moscow's fault. Jessica Golliher there joining us out of Eastern Europe. And that's all we have time for this morning. A ton of feedback has come in. Grant Robinson didn't dodge the relatively unimportant question about Air New Zealand but failed to answer the more important question about Defence Forces preparedness should the Ukraine situation spread into the rest of Europe. I wonder why. Hmm? Uh, Peter Bailey's been active this morning. Hi Nathan, sodomy appears in the Bible a few times. Lesbians get off free. Uh, Also, it was the US who invaded Iraq and set the standard for world powers in the 21st century. No peace, no future. Uh, Tiger's written in a very long one about uh, mistranslations in the Bible too. Here's another one. This woman's a fool. Her whole story, so-called study, is illogical, shallow and done just to justify, satisfy her ego and get her notice. Nothing to do with the subject at hand. And John uh, from Queenstown. Kia ora, sir. How are you? It's been very active this morning. Uh, Morning Report is next with uh, Marnie and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, back in your ears. Ah, poor, poor.